The reading is from St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. And it's on page 1039 in the Church Bibles. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus had said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. 
Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. And now from verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we try to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Before I begin, I would just like to say um, how glad I am to be with you this morning um, and to thank you for inviting me to share in this part of your journey through uh, Luke's Gospel with you. As area dean, that's not the same as the dean of the cathedral, by the way. It's, area dean is like a rural dean, if that's in, kind of in mo- old money language, but I just got fewer sheep, that's all. Um, as area dean, I have a role to play in supporting parishes in vacancy um, and in the appointment process for the new incumbent. So you are very much uh, on my heart, and I bring you the greetings um, and the prayers of the deanery leadership team. Uh, some of you might belong to the deanery WhatsApp group that uh, has been also on the case. So um, the prayers that you are all praying are, are, not, are not on their own. We're praying for you all, of course, and for the right person to be filling out the application form to become your new vicar. Having been a church warden myself, actually, I I do know what extra responsibility comes with a vacancy. Um, So we wanted to thank James and Judith for their leadership, um, and also Brian and George, of course, for uh, keeping things going and holding the fort so well. So just going to open with a prayer. Lord, open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Give us grace to receive it, to understand it, 
to obey it and to share it for the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm especially pleased to be with you to dig into the idea of Jesus the God-man because of all the ways that you could describe Jesus, this is surely the most fundamental, the most mysterious, might even say the most mind-bending. I know that in the last few weeks you've been looking at Jesus the healer, Jesus the teacher. And those are easier to relate to, aren't they? Because we know what teachers and healers do. We have experience ourselves of what that means. But Jesus, the God-man, what does that mean? Was he God? Was he human? Or was he somehow both? It's the question that people have wrestled with ever since he walked the earth among us. The, The first part of the passage we have from Luke 9 for today describes the event called the transfiguration a word which means a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. Its significance is underlined in that it's recounted in almost identical detail by both Matthew and Mark. And it's a turning point in the way that the disciples see Jesus. It's a turning point in his ministry too, because from here on, he is resolutely set on course towards Jerusalem, where he knows that he will be betrayed and tried and crucified. So looking at the text, we plunge straight in with verse 18. Jesus asks his disciples this fundamental question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Well, the crowds think he might be a prophet, John the Baptist, perhaps, who had recently been beheaded. Or Elijah, who had mysteriously been taken up into heaven. Or perhaps he was another ancient prophet who had died but been brought back to life. They clearly have an idea that there's something extraordinary going on. Jesus is not an ordinary man, but perhaps he's an extraordinary prophet. Prophets are those with a special direct line to God, through whom God delivers his message to his people. They would rebuke, warn, encourage, advise, teach, and pray for God's people, calling them to respond to God's word. They're also known to do great deeds of power, such as Elijah raising from the dead the son of the widow at Zarephath. So this fits in very well with what they've seen of Jesus. They've heard him teaching scripture with consummate authority. They've heard him speaking about the kingdom of God, of how people should live. And they've witnessed his healings, including the raising from the dead of both the widow of Nain's son and Jairus' daughter. So the crowds think Jesus is a man through whom God is speaking, and through whom God will help them. They say in Luke 7, they think he's a great prophet who has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. And turning back to our text, verse 20, Jesus makes no comment on this opinion. 
But he turned straight to his disciples and asked the same question of them. But who do you say that I am? The disciples certainly knew Jesus as a human being. They walked with him, they climbed mountains with him, they talked, they laughed, they ate and drank with him. They witnessed his total love of and obedience to God and his extraordinary authority when speaking of God and God's kingdom. And they were in awe at his miracles. So Peter has no hesitation in answering this question. And his answer that he's more than just a prophet, even more than just a great one. He says, it is the Christ of God, or the Messiah, the chosen one of God, in the Hebrew meaning of the anointed one, and in the Greek of the New Testament, the Christ. This is the person the ancient prophets foretold, and the Jewish nation had been expecting for hundreds of years. But there was some difference of expectation about what kind of role the Messiah actually would fulfill. The first thing to say that is, that is that the Messiah would be a mortal man, a powerful leader, yes, chosen by God and acting under divine authority, yes, but a mortal. Some thought the Messiah would be a powerful military leader in the line of King David, who, like him, would conquer Israel's enemies at the head of a mighty army and with divine assistance, but this time for once and for all. Some thought it would be a high priest who would rebuild and cleanse the temple or bring peace and justice by establishing God's rule in the world. And Jesus was born in a place that they knew. He was born in Bethlehem and known as Jesus of Nazareth. They knew his mother and his father and his sisters and his brothers. This is information you can know about a person, a man, you can't really know that information about a god. But although the geographical criteria seem to fit some of the prophecies, Jesus, the humble, mild-mannered teacher and healer, didn't exactly fit the Messiah templates of the ancient prophecies. And there was confusion. Even John the Baptist, who uh, had announced that the Christ was here, sent two of his own followers to ask Jesus, are you the one that was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Nevertheless, his closest followers, these disciples, right up until they met him after the resurrection, thought of him as the Messiah, a man chosen by God and working under God's authority. Perhaps you could say they thought of him as a uniquely godly man, like no other that had come before. And then in verse 21 of our text, we see that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, not as the Son of God. He very often spoke of himself as the Son of Man a phrase which in Aramaic, that he, the language that he spoke, simply means a mortal 
or a human being. But it is also a title that goes back to what some saw as a messianic prophecy in Daniel 7, about one dressed in dazzling white who, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. So perhaps it's rather a cryptic way for Jesus to refer to his own divinity. Theologian Richard Balcom says, Jesus, although usually reticent about being calling himself the Messiah, speaks and acts for God in a way that far surpassed the authority of a prophet in the Jewish tradition. He spoke of himself as being one with the Father, as being the bread of life, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life. He was teacher, servant, shepherd, lord and king, yet gentle and humble in heart. And he carried out acts which were actually the sole prerogative of God, which is why his opponents accused him of blasphemy. He healed people and cast out demons and forgave sins, not in the, in the name of the Lord, but on his own authority. He declared that those who had seen him had seen the one who sent him. As Tom Wright says, he was not simply pointing to God's kingdom some way off in the future, but causing it to appear before people's eyes, setting in motion the events through which it would become firmly established. It's in the transfiguration that Peter, James and John see for themselves for the first time, albeit fleetingly and still without comprehending it, that Jesus is more than the Messiah, or rather, that the Messiah is more than a man. This glimpse of glory is meant to equip them for the trials that are to come, to give them a personal knowledge of the glory of God as revealed in Jesus the Christ, to hold on to when everything appears to go badly wrong. The appearance of Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the great prophet, on that mountain, underline Jesus' claim that he came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. And when they disappear, he alone is left, the crowning glory of God's rescue plan for humankind. And it's significant that Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about his departure, verse 31, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word actually is exodus. And when you put it like that, it rings other bells, doesn't it? Exodus, the word used when Moses delivered God's people out of slavery into Egypt, uh, out of slavery in Egypt to the edge of the promised land. Jesus, the God-man, will lead God's people out of slavery of a much bigger kind, the slavery of sin and death, and will lead them into the true kingdom of God, the new creation in which all humanity 
will be redeemed. Clearly no mortal man, however special, could do this. There's that lovely bit in verse uh, 33 with Peter offering to build shelters for them. Uh, Luke says he didn't really know what he was saying. I'm not sure about that. I don't want to argue with Luke. I wouldn't normally argue with a gospel writer. Um, But perhaps Peter had a sudden insight. Remembering the prophecy in Zechariah 14 that God's new age would be ushered in during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, the festival kept by Jews for centuries, the festival in which they built themselves flimsy shelters. It's a a festival that points towards the culmination of God's redemptive purposes. They built themselves these flimsy shelters as reminders that their security comes properly only from God. And perhaps Peter was wanting to say, well, that's where we are, actually. And in amongst all this, the disciples, overshadowed and enveloped by the cloud that was the presence of God, hear God say, this is my son, the chosen. Listen to him. Jesus, the God-man, there on the mountain, transfigured by the glory of God. And it has to be so, because the alternative, as John Macquarie says, is either that you so identify Jesus with the human race that he's completely engulfed in the human condition and therefore incapable of being a saviour or redeemer, or else... You so stress his divinity that therefore his difference from the human race makes him irrelevant to the human condition. And again, you have to say he's incapable of being a saviour. But Jesus, the God-man, is the only one who can do that, who has done that. The word of God became flesh to redeem humanity, because that is the nature of God's grace and generosity, that his creation should be made new and delivered from the power of sin and death that only God has um, control over. So coming down from the mountain, the disciples were silent, and perhaps it's not surprising. Imagine how bewildering and awe-inspiring that was, and it was extraordinary. The idea that Jesus, the man Messiah, could also be fully divine is extraordinary, even for us uh, today, for us who know what happened when they went to Jerusalem, how the events unfolded with the um, crucifixion and the resurrection and then later the ascension of Jesus to his rightful place at God's right hand on high. So as Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, coming down from that mountain, we now set our face towards Lent, the time of trial that uh, that, that we um, 
encounter before the joy of Easter. And perhaps it's a good time for us to revisit this question for ourselves from Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Is he deluded? Is he one who deluded others? Is he divine? Is he really the God-man? And if our conclusion is, as I think is inescapable, that he is uniquely the God-man who came so that we might not perish but have eternal life, what should be our response to that? I like this quote from Jane Williams' recent book, The Art of Advent. She says, We've tended to assume that Jesus became human like us. But now we discover that we are invited to become human like him. I don't know if you struggle, as I do, with the thought that I'm not godly enough, you know, and I've got a long way to go before I could think of myself as a godly person. But actually, what if we just try to be human in the perfect human way that Jesus was human? Free from sin, yes, we won't ever attain that. But doing the things that Jesus did, being the kind of person that he was, and um, the street pastor is actually a really good example I think Jesus would be a street pastor today, don't you, if, uh, if, if, he were, if that was available to him. We've seen the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. How can we encourage each other to hold on to that vision and mystery in difficult times because we all go through them and it's those times when we think Perhaps the plan has gone wrong. We don't know really how it's going to work out. How can we model ourselves more closely on Jesus? I want to close with a short prayer. Lord, this Lent, may we come to a fresh understanding of what Jesus Christ the Christ, the God-man, means in our lives. May we have the courage to embrace the mystery and to share it. For your glory. Amen.